Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. What's up? How is everybody doing all around the world? Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen to the show. Okay, you guys, we have an awesome guest I know you are going to love today. Her name is Stephanie Arney, and she's a wildlife conservationist, a nature host, and producer. You might have seen her online work with Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. They did numerous webisodes. You might have seen that viral video of that girl being kissed by like 30 otters in the water. It's been seen like 100 billion times. Yeah, that's Stephanie. You know, and it was so cool to finally connect with Stephanie. We've actually known about each other and we've been following each other for a few years now and we both do similar work so we both educate people about animals we both do a lot of tv work and it was really cool to like relate to somebody and this is me being completely honest it is hard to relate to people sometimes you know because you know of course people know what it's like to work with animals a lot of people work with animals around the world but a lot of people don't know what that's like you know working with animals on tv or in the media and it was just cool to kind of share stories and swap experiences and what i learned so much during in the interview is how similar they are. We also talk about her experiences traveling the world, working with a variety of different animals, including having crazy encounters like swimming with crocodiles, sharks, going on African safaris, seeing leopards. Yeah, I'm still a little, I feel a little resentment after hearing she saw a leopard and she actually saw a kill. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to let it go, Stephanie. Okay, that was a joke. But uh, yeah, we just talk about these experiences. And you know, I feel like this episode is very, will be very inspirational, I believe, for people, maybe young listeners listening around the world who want to pursue a career working with animals. And you you just are kind of like, wait, like, where do I start? And, you know, Stephanie, as you're going to learn, grew up in the middle of Iowa. And, you know, she moved, I think, over 10 different times before she was in the sixth grade. And she just always had this dream and this passion to educate people about animals. And like I said, it's really inspirational. Just follow your dreams. You do have to make sacrifices as you'll learn. Stephanie and her husband are doing some that I'm, I just have to take my hat off to them because my wife would not go for this, but they live in a tiny house. They're minimalists. And we talk about some of the sacrifices that they have had to do, you know, living in a tiny home. And it's just really interesting. I really enjoyed my interview with Stephanie. I know you will as well. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please make sure to follow me on Instagram or Facebook. My tag is at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also started something new, Patreon, which... I've actually received a few emails and people are like, what's Patreon? It's simply just a way to support the podcast. If you listen every week, if you want to donate a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, a million dollars, please, come on guys, someone out there, uh, just to support the show. Everything is self-funded. And so uh, if you'd like to do that, go to patreon.com slash animals to the max. That's the way to do that. With that said, everybody, I hope you enjoy the interview with Stephanie Arney. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, and you have such an interesting story, and you travel the world, and I just want to know more. And we also do similar work in TV, which is great, and it's kind of cool because we could both relate because there's very few of us, I think, doing that. And so I just, yeah, take me, take me from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Oh, wow. Okay, so I grew up in Iowa, primarily in Iowa. My Both sides of my family grew up in tiny towns, and uh, so I also grew up in a tiny town, surrounded by creeks and uh, farmlands, essentially, And but I did spend a lot of time on farms and ranches as well. So I think that's really what helped me start my fascination with animals and our connection and, and relationship with them. 
And I think at a really young age, I just remember sitting around creeks and watching the snakes and the frogs and the birds and the, and the bugs and just really understanding um, at a very young age, the interconnectedness of all things. And then learning that not everybody really noticed that. And so I found myself teaching people all the time about it. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is something I like to do. This is fun. It's fun to show people because it's like lifting a curtain and letting people see, look how fascinating the natural world is. So that's where that all started. Um, But I think a big part of my career uh, attributes to the fact that my parents moved a lot, a lot. Uh, We moved 10 times before I was in sixth grade. 10 times? Yep, not in the military either. Uh, oh, wow. My dad, my dad did serve for a while, but no, they're horticulturists, <laughs> and they wanted to travel the world. And for them, it was leaving Iowa, and if that meant going just boop to Indiana or New Jersey, then um, that was you know them expanding and traveling the world and seeing different things. So I moved around a lot, and eventually we settled down in South Dakota, Pierre, South Dakota. Okay. And that was just this fascinating place. I love the prairie land, um, and I grew up right on the Missouri River from about sixth grade until I went to college at South Dakota State University. Nice, nice. So when you were younger, though, I can't believe you moved 10 times. It must have been so hard. (laughs) Yeah, you know... um, if you ask my brother, he took it a different way than I did. You know, I he went more of the shy introvert kind of way and would grab a hold of friends and then we'd move and he'd be like, no, you know, <laughs> I instead just saw everything was an opportunity. I just took it that way. And I don't know if that was a coping mechanism or if I just my soul and my DNA thrive on change and um loving to see new things and uh, meeting new people. So everywhere I went, I kind of went to the more extreme extroverted side and made it my goal to be friends with everybody and um, just see the greatness and everyone and everything around me. So I tried to go that way. And and I'm sure it was probably unhealthy in its own fashion because (laughs) through, through life, I've had to work on boundaries on like, okay, you don't have to make everybody happy. And you know, (laughs) it's okay, you're going to survive in the tribe, no matter what, you don't have to please every, everybody in it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So when you grew up, did you like want to be on TV? Or I mean, did you grow up and maybe want to be a zookeeper or a veterinarian? I grew up wanting to be a paleontologist, an archaeologist, a zoologist, a, a TV show host. I, I never saw anyone that looked like me as a TV show host. Uh, when I saw Joan Embry go on The Tonight Show, that was kind of a huge thing for me in the 80s, is seeing her and being like, oh, hey, women she, can do this? She's a pioneer. You know? she, and we're actually working on getting her on the show. So I'm like, come oh. on, fingers crossed. She's a pioneer, though, for women and just even for people who bring present animals on TV. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So that was really cool to see her. But I, I think as a kid, I just wanted to be an explorer. And I didn't quite know what that was going to look like. But I knew I wanted to see the world. I was fascinated with the interconnectedness of animals, but also with humans, cultures. Oh, fascinated with culture. Okay, interesting. So you so you went to school. What did you get your degree in? I have a degree in human development and behaviorism. So it's more of a human animal psychology behaviorism degree. Uh Uh, It doesn't even exist at the college anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I I was 
it was cool because then I was able to use that psychology degree to either work with humans or I could work with animals. I chose to work with humans and animals in our field and translate their knowledge to the public. So I'm, I use my degree all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So in 2013, you land a great position as the host of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. They're doing a web series. So take me through that. I mean, did you just scour across this audition and were you like, oh my gosh, I have to audition for this? <laughs> okay, so I started my career in um, after I graduated from college in 2005, and okay. I found out that zoos had education apartments. So like I said, I wanted to work in exploration and something in conservation and animals and such. I just didn't know what that would look like. I thought I had to have a zoology degree and here I had a behaviorism degree. So I, I had to break through that wall and figure out, oh, I can work for a zoo, uh, which to me was leaving tiny South Dakota to go to big time Omaha. Oh, <laughs> and, nice. Oh, yeah, nice. So, I started my internship at Omaha's Henry Doyle Zoo and Aquarium and worked in education. And I think that's really where I started to find out that I really loved speaking and connecting with people and telling stories at that level. And I think that's really when it um, started to, that seed started to blossom. So I, from there, I, I worked at several zoos. I worked for uh, Honolulu Zoo, San Diego Zoo, SeaWorld San Diego. I spent many years bopping around to different countries, living off of God knows what, like ramen noodles, probably. Nice. <laughs> I love ramen. <laughs> I, know, I still do. Right? And basically just taking any internship I could get um, at a sanctuary, a rescue with university researchers and scientists. Uh, I worked for different types of ecotourism companies. I, I, again, I just, I think the big picture is so important, important. So I loved learning about zoos, but I really wanted to know how all of these entities work together. And I found out that um, they all basically have the same mission. You'll hear different organizations say, oh, well, this, these people should do this with this animal. And these guys should do this. And and then I would hear the public, you know, say something about a zoo and how this should happen or we should close zoos. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm starting to see a disconnect that people aren't quite aware that all these entities are working for one similar conservation miss mission. Mm -hmm. It's just if you hear any um, adversity or, or division, it's simply because we're a human and we're trying to survive ourselves. So we're fighting for conservation money. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, that causes a lot of division. And so I found myself trying to share this message all the time on YouTube and social media and in any of the jobs that I had had in my 20s. And somebody had said to me, you, you know, wow, you really understand this big picture and you have a, a, a very good big picture perspective of how all of this works. And you say it in a very respectful, non-judgmental way, you should have a TV show. And I was like, no, no, no. And this person's like, well, I work for Animal Planet and I'm a producer and I'm telling you, you need to have a TV show. And then it was like, oh, well, okay then. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> just and, give me a show. Yeah, right. It sounds so easy. And that was back in your 20s. So this would have been when I was probably 28. I was living uh -huh. in Australia working on the Ningaloo Reef with whale sharks. Okay, nice. Yeah, and a producer came out with his wife on vacation, and basically, um, in his eyes, he sees it as he helped discover me. And uh, I, he, but what he did is he planted a seed, and so I started thinking to myself, hmm, how maybe I could host a show, maybe I could have a, a bigger reach. 
uh, with my with my emotions and feelings about how this world works. And so I came back to the Honolulu. I was working in Hawaii again for the second time in my career, and I was trying to create my own TV show. And I ended up connecting with so many people, and we were actually making it happen and creating scripts. And I was practicing on camera, and we had a crew. And then Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom um, created this YouTube video that said, hey, look, we're going to do a contest to look for our wild guide who's going to be our new host for a new web series. And it's all in the celebration of our 50th anniversary. Because we, for a lot of people that might not be aware of this, but Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom has been around since the 60s and started with Republicans and Jim Fowler and and Tom Allen and... And Jack Hanna learned from Jim Fowler and started this hold whole on, thing. Hold on, hold right? on. Jack, we have to say hi to Jack. <laughs> hi, Jack. <laughs> hey, Jack Hanna. Anyway, go ahead, Stephanie. Sorry. Um, so uh, I was like, great, you know, let's, let's go for this. I, I told my team, I was like, you know, pause on our project. I have to go for this. And I only found out about it because a coworker from my past, Julie Anderson, had written me and said, hey, you know, you worked here like eight years ago, and believe it or not, Wild Kingdom is coming back. And I'm like, Mutual of Omaha, that's the insurance we had when I worked at the <laughs> Omaha too. And she goes, yeah, the big exhibit, the Mutual of Omaha, you know, we're in their 20s. I didn't know what life insurance was then. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow. And all of a sudden, all these uh, lights start going off in my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember sitting and watching that show with my parents and my grandparents. And uh, so I ended up auditioning for this contest. And 2,000 people entered in their two-minute video, and they narrowed it down from 2,000 down to 12. And then from there, we needed the public to vote for us every day for 13 days. Oh, man. How nerve-wracking. I mean, were you... Oh. So nerve-wracking. But I was quite confident. I, there was just something inside me that said, this, this is for you. This is where you're meant to be. Mm-hmm. So I had this very strange... Uh, calm and confidence but i did also get my very first migraine during that time period it was pretty intense um and then they narrowed it down to the top three from there and i was flown into omaha to audition and do live screen testings and interviews and everything and i found out a couple weeks later that i had won that's so awesome it was like the craziest experience of my life. I remember falling to the floor crying, being like, this cannot be real. Like what this, this stuff does not happen. Like what? Um, and my life changed drastically. I, I ended up moving back to the mainland, California and filming one webisode found out that I do really love it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was not too shabby at it, but I also knew I had a lot to learn, a lot to learn. Hosting, as you know, is so, so much harder than a lot of people assume that it is. And with it being a spokesperson and having that type of pressure and responsibility is also a lot. It's a lot to take in. And, you know, I'm not just filming. I'm doing press for it, too. And I'm doing live shows. And so mm-hmm. did that for about five years. That's that so amazing. cool. Hold on, let's go back. But didn't you meet your now husband? And by the way, are you drinking coffee or an IPA? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's 9 a.m. in California. I'm not judging you, Stephanie. Are you? <laughs> I, um, 
It is actually Fiesta Week here, which is a, a Spanish celebration for the oh, entire cool. week. So there are people outside of my office in downtown Santa Barbara, California, that are probably drinking an IPA right now. <laughs> However, this is espresso, Corbin. <laughs> no <laughs> but if worries. We did, if we did this in the evening, it might be a glass of wine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so hold on, back onto this. Okay, so you actually met your husband, though, through this process, correct? Yes, which is another big reason why this was so life-changing, because right. my right. husband was in the top 12, oh. and yeah, <laughs> just take that in for a moment. Okay, I am. Okay, so, okay, you guys are both in competition with each other. I mean, how did that, did you guys hit it off at first, or? Well, basically what happened is it went down to the top 12, and um, we all actually started talking, everybody in the top 12, minus a handful of people, or maybe four people, and we're all still friends to this day. Uh, but we all started chatting and saying, look, but how freaking unbelievable is this opportunity? You know, we're all so honored. Uh, you know, every one of you is so incredible, and I'm, I'm honored to be up against you. It was such a friendly competition. It was quite refreshing, to be honest with you. Um, and so I had seen a couple of the comments Tim had made and I'd seen his video and I thought he was wonderful. Um, he was just, you could tell right away. He was just a smart, sweet, typical Midwestern great guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm from there. I mean, we grew up only a few hours away from each other. Mm -hmm. So I knew him right away. I was like, well, I know that guy, but mm -hmm. I had left the country wanting, you know, it's like, I want to go on adventures and meet people from different cultures. And if you ask my girlfriends, they were all like, oh, Stephanie's going to meet some like sexy culture, <laughs> British or Brazilian or Polynesian guy. And I'm envisioning that guy from Game of Thrones you know the first season that Daenerys is married to like the <laughs> yes Jason Moa yeah, yeah Jason um, Moa that's his name I mean, okay go ahead <laughs> yeah you know I think a lot of people really assume that that is the type of person I was going to end up with and definitely I'm not going to lie I did try but in the end what did I fall for I fall for my own one of my own people and you know it, it, I think that says a lot it's it's interesting because I think we're really fascinated, especially as a young age, we're really fascinated with different cultures and how other people live. And I hear a lot of young girls be like, oh, I want to date an Australian guy. What was that like? Um, but I think in the end, um, it for me, it worked to be with somebody who grew up with a similar culture, morals, values, um, had, a, had a similar way of, of seeing the interconnectedness of nature. And as a Midwesterners, I think growing up around crops and farms and and ranches you you you're just kind of forced to see at a very young age how we're dependent on things but also how uh how we have to consider agriculture and climate and uh the economy and politics when growing food and um when considering the relationship with animals so i think we both saw that at a really young age so he got me. He understood me compared to a lot of other men that I've dated in my past where I think they saw me right away and they're like, oh, look how fun and sparkly she is. And then they're like, oh, okay, well, she is a she is a difficult big picture perspective of the world. <laughs> I was pretty independent and tough and nobody was going to hold me down. And um, thankfully, Tim has always been really, really supportive and understanding of, of my perspective of the world. That's good. I mean, I... That's interesting, though, because because he both wanted that same, you know, to host that show. And I'll tell you what, like, I think the reason why my wife and I work out is she hates TV. Like, she <laughs> hates it. 
I brought her on the Today Show this year, and she was mortified. Like, it was the biggest fight we ever had. She was like, don't ever do that again. Like, she was so mortified. So it's just, it's really, it's cool that you guys are able to work. And so, and he's also an artist, and so it's cool that you guys are able to, you know, work together and travel the world together. Well, yeah, you know, I think he, he definitely wanted the show. This was a dream of his as well. And if he was here, he would say, this is what he typically says, uh, I wanted it too. I thought I had it in the bag because he used to be the animal handler for Peter Gross and Jim Fowler. And so he's already was kind of a part of the Wild Kingdom story. Mm-hmm. So he always says things like, I thought I had it in the bag until I met this girl and I saw her <laughs> story and I was like, oh crap, she's got it. And the joke is like, he just decided to jump on the Steph train then and he won. He still won, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he married you and he's going on the adventures. So yeah. you're the host of... Uh, of the show and by the way like i mean you and i have gone through a few auditions it's so nerve-wracking what has been like let's go to a funny story like the worst audition story and i'll tell you mine as well uh well wow you know (laughs) because my audition story was actually for wild kingdom was amazing because i was so confident and Mm -hmm. i knew it and Mm -hmm. but i i mean i have a picture of me doing a headstand in the middle of this really huge meeting room table that fits 30 people and i'm doing a headstand like basically it's like dance for me monkey you know (laughs) i i was so into it and wanted to show them how spontaneous and fun i was uh for i've been doing wild kingdom for five years and I have been approached multiple times by production companies specifically wanting to do a show with me. And um, they still want to do, as you know, let's do our first Skype interview and we'll like ask you questions about your life. And then we're going to overlay some B-roll footage of you and, you know, trying to learn the whole process of, of how this works. Now you and I know better. We know how it works. Um, but yeah, I definitely had a couple where I didn't know how it worked and, mm-hmm. um, I would say there's probably a few instances of just saying things the wrong way or um, being overly enthusiastic. They're <laughs> <laughs> just like, calm down. Yeah. Slow down. Uh, yeah, but I would, I would even say like in the last year, I, um, I think when I started learning how tough the industry was, I think those were some of my worst auditions and, and meetings because I started becoming more jaded and they would ask me a question. And I just like, what, are you just going to steal this idea? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, for me, I think uh, my auditions and meetings, um, there isn't anything too extreme, but I'm sure there that they would have some some stories to be like, she's crazy, she's too enthusiastic, or she seems really jaded. Uh-huh. And <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you my worst one, and it wasn't even to do with animals. It was for Disney. And this uh-huh. was years ago, and I had jet lag, and I had to memorize. They, the, my agent contacted me 24 hours before this, so I had to fly to Los Angeles, and I was in New York, and I had to memorize a script for this thing. It was this TV show called like Frankenweenie. Ah. Oh, right. So I was like trying to like memorize this script and it was all. And anyway, it, it was just not for me. So I stuck with animals after that. It was like, <laughs> it's like, I'm good. Like, anyway, that's cool, though. Yeah. So uh, so when you work with mutual, you know, mutual of Omaha's Animal Kingdom, I mean, what was it like? Talk about some of the animals you were able to work with. Well, I, I, it was pretty cool. The first season, we filmed stories on tegu lizards, condors, um, American bison, took people back to my home state of South Dakota. Um, and th- those were really fun webisodes. They were about five or six minutes long. We had fun graphics. Uh, it was my first time really 
being around condors. So I didn't realize how huge condors were or that when they were in the air and they fly right above you, like they're so big and you can hear the wind go through the feathers. And for the first time I looked at this bird that I think like most people you're like, (laughs) (laughs) but you are not attractive, (laughs) but then you see them in, in big Sur, and you just are blown away with how beautiful they are. So I think some of my favorite moments in the filming Wild Kingdom are getting the opportunity to be exposed to some of the animals that a lot of people maybe have never had a connection with, or um, maybe that animal has a bad rap Mm -hmm. because they have been portrayed in the media as being bad, you know, Mm -hmm. sharks, wolves, crocodiles, snakes, spiders, the typical. And and I find myself, I gravitate. I find myself Mm -hmm. gravitating more towards those animals because I have had the opportunity to be exposed to them in not just in a zoological uh, facility, but also in the wild. And so you get to see how incredible they are in their element and how they fit in so well to that ecosystem Mm. and how their adaptations just make them the perfect. It makes them perfect and beautiful and, and, and smart. I've learned that not all animal, like everybody's like, oh, oh, there's some animals are smart. Some are, no, they're all smart. They're all smart. And that's the reason why they're here is because they have adapt and and evolved and coming up with they've came up with this intelligence over a long period of time to survive exactly the way that they are and when you see that in real life it's it's so freaking unbelievably beautiful that you can't help but do everything you can to fight for them Um, so I think those are my favorite wild kingdom experiences if i were to try to sum it up the condors did you know that boise is the condor capital of the world boise no. Idaho? yes you oh. have to come visit we have the world center for birds of prey and they have the largest breeding population of california condors in the world no one has any idea oh i did not know that that's so cool they're so I, I, cool well you know santa barbara and la and big sur and monterey mm-hmm. And uh, the Montana Wildlife Society, all these organizations are working so hard to save them down here. But, you know, I haven't even seen one wild one down here. I Mm -hmm. see them. um, I've seen them in Big Sur. But I actually live in a canyon above Santa Barbara. And it's called California Condor Canyon. And I'm like, there's no damn, there's no condors up here. It's it's all spooky vultures, but there used to be. So I I think when I'm sitting outside in the morning having coffee or an IPA, (laughs) (laughs) I look up and I see these turkey vultures and I'm like, wow, I couldn't imagine how awesome it would be if there were condors still here in this area. So yeah, it's, it's, they are coming back and that is very exciting, but I have not seen them around Santa Barbara yet. Yeah. Okay. Was there one animal when you started filming that you were a little nervous around? You were like, wait, what are we going to do? We're going to be with what? Yeah. Um, So I had had experience working with sharks before and I have worked with lots of spiders and done shows with tons of, you know, rosy haired tarantulas. Mm -hmm. And I've even done a lot of work with snakes, Mm -hmm. uh, constrictors primarily, but I have also gotten some experience working with venomous snakes in Australia. Mm -hmm. So it's none of that. It was crocodiles when really? I swam. Mm-hmm. And, and I've worked with even in zoos. And even when I do shows, we have, uh, you know, small alligators that we'll work with when we do programs around the country or we go on on today's show or whatever, you know. And, and I'm sure you and I actually work with very similar animal handlers. Oh, yeah. So, we, you know, I've worked with them. Uh, but 
When you go into Mexico and you you can go to a place called Eshclac Dive Company, uh-huh. and they're in Eshclac, Mexico. It's a couple hours south of Cancun. You jump on a boat. You go two and a half hours out into the ocean, and you end up in these islands called Banco Chinchero, and they have these really fascinating hybrid species that are only found in this area of crocodilians and they are they 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 spend a lot of time in brackish water they go into the island for the fresh water and then they come out every single day to go hang out in the salt water and there are these huts where these mexican fishermen come out and they go out for months at a time and they just stock up and then they bring the fish back to the mainland so these fishermen have had a relationship with these crocodiles and what happens is they would fish and then they would chop up the fish and then drop it into the ocean. And so these crocodiles would come up and, and eat their leftovers. And so these men have such a positive feeling and emotion towards these animals, but they were like, you, you ask them if they want to go in the water with them and they're like, no, 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 <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> no, good. Good. but they're cool. We don't want to hurt them or anything. We do respect mm. their role. So we, there was this fisherman who, who got uh, convinced by a bunch of Americans to say, hey, uh, let us borrow your fishing hut and we're going to see if we can get in the water with these crocodiles. And they did it and it went really well. <clears throat> and the reason why it works well, on it, it's only in, this one, in front of this one fishing hut in Banco Chinchero. And it's because this fishing hut has a patch of sand that that um, this big patch of sand that could fit probably about seven people. Mm-hmm. And in that patch of sand, you can go onto your knees and your head and a snorkel stick out, stick out perfectly. And why that's important is because it lowers you a few feet, but there's still a ledge. And on that ledge, the crocodiles will come up to that ledge. And you can stop them there. If you have a bamboo stick, you can gently just put that in front of you and say, stay there. And if you stay vertical, Mm -hmm. then they don't recognize you as prey. And so they've spent a lot of time working with the government and marine biologists and these um, ecotourism companies like the Eshkolak Dive Center have worked really hard on creating regulations for safety for the crocodiles and humans to have these types of interactions. And it's extremely limited, very controlled. And again, it's only in this one spot. So we get all this training and I learn all about it, but I'm not going to lie. I'm still very hesitant and normally if you ask uh the wild kingdom camera crew they would say i'm the one that's normally jumping in right away Uh um i'll observe for a little bit and then i'm like yeah let's do this i was not the first one in the water this day corbin (laughs) (laughs) how big were they though i mean they were probably decent Uh, size right um seven to to 12 feet long um yeah, so they weren't like huge. This wasn't a massive, huge Nile crocodile, but it definitely was intimidating. And Amanda Cotton, who's a photographer, um, underwater photographer, she took us along with Eshkolak Dive Center, and we went into the water with her and Matthias, who which was our dive, our snorkel crocodile protector, and. The team, my team went in first and I just watched them and I saw how nervous you can see from up above the fishing cut. You can look down and you can see that, you know, Chris and Matt are holding their big cameras and are like, <laughs> like a little bit nervous. But after about, uh, about 30 minutes, you can see them really calming down. And then Amanda goes, okay, now it's your turn. And I just slowly walked to the edge. Yeah. I, yeah, I was 
quite nervous for that one. But, you know, once you get in the water and you see how they move and you see how they look at you, you you learn just like working with any other animal. You learn what their tics are. You learn their behavioral instincts. You know what not to do. And if you don't do those things, you're quite safe. Uh, So they still gave me a little bamboo stick if it made me feel a little bit more comfortable because I didn't have the big camera. You know, everybody else had a big camera to separate them. I didn't. So (laughs) they're like feeling naked and vulnerable and exposed. Um, So they gave me this bamboo stick and uh, we spent three days straight, almost all day in the water with them. And I, you fall in love very quickly. They're such incredible species. That is so cool. Do you have a photo of that? I would love to see that. I do. I do. It's, yeah, I have a photo of Matthias is right on my right hand side and I'm looking right at the crocodile and we're almost face to face. Oh my gosh. That is so cool. That is so cool. What is your, oh, I definitely want to do that. I definitely want to do that. So (laughs) what, so, I mean, what is your favorite place around the world that you filmed? Ooh, I really loved going to Mexico, but I'm really fascinated with um, just Mexico and Central America. I'm I'm just fascinated with with any type of of Latin culture in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I also really loved going to the Bahamas and filming sharks with uh, with Christina Zanotto, who's a legend, and Jillian Morris Brake and her husband Duncan Brake. They film a lot of Shark Week stuff. You've probably seen a lot of their work or seeing a lot of their posts for Shark Week. Uh, it was amazing to be around them and to be around the hammerheads. Another oh, animal. They're, oh, I would die. Oh, I would die. I couldn't even hold my excitement. I'd be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like underwater. Yeah. They have a clip of me on the boat, like dancing. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, like, when you saw one. Yep. Yeah. Oh, oh, my gosh. I was so excited. Um, and the water is the visibility is amazing. And these mm. same three to five hammerhead sharks spend almost all year round mm. in this one spot in the Bahamas. And so um, Neil Watson, who has a boat company there, he took us out and we dove down, I don't know, maybe 20 meters. It was quite shallow, 20, 30 meters at the most. And you sit in this beautiful white sand and you just watch these massive hammerhead sharks swim at you. And, and there was a few times you can see uh, in the episode where a hammerhead's coming right over my head. Oh. And it, you just see me do this because with a mask, it's all distorted and the yeah. water light is and you can't see perfectly well well at least I, i'll speak for myself distance is always a little bit weird for me underwater sometimes uh-huh, uh-huh. so there's a hammerhead coming at me and you could see me like shrink down like because i'm afraid that the bottom part of their jaw oh yeah which is such an important purpose to help scoop things up from underneath the water like a ray that's hiding mm-hmm. in the water it's a great great adaptation but it also reminds me of beaker from the muppets like okay, burr, burr, burr. <laughs> okay. So every time it swam over my head I, I was afraid it was like gonna shave the top part of my hair off um oh. which is ridiculous it would never happen it did bump my my mask a few times so they do get very very close to you um that was such a cool experience as well oh I want to go back. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. That just, yeah, that sharks. I feel like I would be a hair more nervous, I feel like, with the hammerheads and the crocodiles. I don't know why. That's just me, personally. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, well, I think it's what, and probably, as you know, it's it's anything that you feel really comfortable with. I think mm. I've spent so many hours. I, I worked for a year on the Great Barrier Reef. I worked oh. for six months on the Ningaloo Reef. I, I lived in Hawaii and spent 
countless hours on the reef there. So I, I feel quite familiar with just shark behavior in general, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, whereas mm-hmm. I haven't spent as much time around any wild crocodilian species. Mm-hmm. All of them have been animal ambassadors. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of experience working with crocodilians. So mm-hmm. it's, I can sense. see that makes a ton of sense. Well, how about for you? What's one of your favorite uh, filming experiences with animals? Oh my All right. favorite, favorite animal or favorite place? Favorite oh, um Africa, hands down. Mm-hmm. Hands down. Mm-hmm. Kenya, the Maasai Mara. Oh my god. I, I wanted to die and just and I just wanted to become like a guide and never come back and just forget everything and just I I felt at home. Ha, yep. ha, have, you, feel... have you been to the Maasai Mara? I just got back a couple months ago. Oh my gosh. And I was just starting to like you. Are you kidding me, Stephanie? <laughs> okay, hold on. This is okay. Did you see a leopard? Did you? How many? One. I saw oh. one in the Mara and it was eating. Oh my God. Oh. It had just, it had just got a kill. The mm. only problem is this, like the Mara to me was amazing because I, I've, I've gone to Ghana, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso. Mm. Um, I've spent a month and a half in South Africa before I got to Kenya. So I have a lot of experience out on safari. Um, and I would say the Mara to me is one of the best because you get those large herds of animals and so many species mixed together. You, you can look out on the plains and see six different species of animals and they're all like BFF, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that is just, I, I don't need to see the big five, but it seems like when you go to the Mara, every guide has it in their head, like you must see the big five. Yep. So there was times where I was actually quite disappointed because a lot of us in the car were like, we want to make it very clear. Like every second it felt like we were saying like, we don't need to, we don't need to see the big five. Like I want to see Reverse the animal. psychology. <laughs> it, it, it took two days for this guy to get it wrapped around his head that we don't need to see the big five. But if, if it came over the radio that something was found, we would speed for an hour through the Mara just to see a leopard. But then we get to this leopard and it is amazing. It's beautiful and it has a kill and it's bloody and it's under this tree and it, it was nature right there. But if you look back, you're surrounded by eight other caravans or Jeeps and they're all desperately trying to make sure that their guests see this leopard and get the photos that they want. And you see, you just feel the angst of people and the anxiety and the, um, the greed, all of that kind of comes out because you don't know if you're going to be able to see a leopard again. And if you come to the Savannah and you're so fixed, like I must see a leopard, I must Mm -hmm. see lions and you're not, it's going to put you in a different state energetically and you can sense that there. And I just, I didn't enjoy it as much because of that. And also I'm spoiled. I'm used to being able to go out with rangers and scientists and our own go wherever we want. And on this particular day, I was specifically kind of on a safari with other people. So I didn't have the type of mm, that, that that would drive me nuts. Yeah. And I agree with you. So when I first went to Africa, I was shocked because when you watch those nature documentaries, you don't see the buses of tourists. And I remember my first cheetah and there were 12 mini buses and Jeeps, like just and the cheetah was just under a bush. And I felt kind of like, I was like, oh, okay. And it it felt weird. weird. Yeah. And I remember feeling like a little disappointed my first day, but then 
when you are out, you know, on safari and you come across something no one has. I remember we came across like a cheetah and she had five cubs and no one was there. And they just like walked into us. And it was like those types of experiences were amazing. Yeah, I, yes, exactly. And, and I do feel that way. So anybody who's listening, I'd definitely encourage you to go oh, on go, safari go. and go yes. travel. Do it. I think it's really important. I mean, if you have to work three jobs and sell everything you own to do it, I highly recommend it. But when you go, um, I, I encourage you to just see what happens. You know, don't, you know, you can sit here and say, I really would love to see giraffes. You're going to see giraffes. You're going to see antelope. You're going to see elephants. Uh, but in, in terms of the big five, I, I promise you, you'll have a better experience if you say like, whatever's supposed to happen is supposed to happen. I'm not going to force my guide to do this because it does kind of take away from the experience. And um, quite frankly, I'd rather see my own leopard by myself with our with our own van compared to like 15 vans there, you know? So I don't know, that's just my input. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I love the Mara though. I, oh my God, I cannot wait to go back. I'm going back next year and I'm just like counting down the days. It's like my favorite place in the world. I just feel so, just so alive there, so yeah. I Have you ever been to South Africa? I have not been to South Africa. No. Okay, so Kruger is a really great place too. It is, um, it is still fenced in. There's nothing wild in South Africa anymore. Uh, it is fenced in, but once you dig into it a little bit more and you get past all the self-driving tours, you can get in to some places and just it's such a cool place as it, well. And it, it might be more accessible for a lot of people. I feel like it's more commercialized though. I've heard from my guides with the paved roads and you know. Yeah. You can get off those paved roads, Good. absolutely, but you do need to get away from, you know, you need to drive in further than an hour, you know, from the gates of Kruger to get to those those places, yeah. uh, and a lot of people don't do that, but I encourage you to, for sure. That's awesome, that's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about some national TV um, national TV appearances, okay? So okay. what is your first, so your first major one, you did Fox and Friends, right? Yes. Okay. Were you like, so, okay, your first national experience, like, were you just terrified or what was that like? No, it wasn't scary at all. I don't mm -hmm. get nervous to go on TV. Mm -hmm. I, I feel very natural uh, and in my element when I'm doing live stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that changes as soon as the camera comes on and you don't, you know, we're, you're talking to this black circle, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but live to me is just my thing. So I really enjoyed it. I think what was fascinating to me was seeing how these news channels, big ones, right? Like I've been to multiple small local <laughs> news channels and stuff, but I'd never been to a big one like Fox and Friends. And so walking in there, I was really excited to see how things ran behind the scenes and it's uh it's complex like it is set they, they live second by second as you know <laughs> so everything is okay we're gonna be ready for you in a minute and 32 seconds and when that's up they're like okay we're gonna oh, oh we're gonna we're behind a little bit hold on tease tease hurry up tease tease grab the finnick box yep, go yep, three two one and five go <laughs> And then all of a sudden it's fast paced. You're like, oh, you you guys have about 37 seconds. And then all of a sudden it's five, four, three. Oh, grab an animal. Go, go, go. And you like get up there. And then what do you do? You hold your like baby alligator and just sit there and smile and wave at the camera as they go. Next, we have Stephanie on board. She's going to tell us more about more animals in the wild kingdom. And you're just like, hi, I'm waving on a camera, not talking. And then it's okay. Get her off. Get her off. Get her off. Next, next, yep, next. next. And then the crew guy comes. Yeah. You just have to look off in the abyss sometimes. You know what I mean? Look at the animal and then kind of like, <laughs> all right, cut, wrap up, wrap up. Let's go. Let's go. That is so funny. Uh 
what was hard with Fox and Friends is that they have three hosts and all of them love to talk. Mm. And all of them have pretty strong opinions about things. And so and you know, I had no, you know, and, and, and trust me, I had a lot of people that really uh, wanted to know what it was like and <laughs> who it's, it's an intense place. And let me tell you, I went there pretty regularly for about two years mm-hmm. and I had the turnover there is wow. They, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of turnover there and you can take that however you want. Uh, but the, the hosts were, Oh, they're always friendly for the most part. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple of them knew how to ask quite, you know, good questions, but it always felt like it was just let's try to pull out seven animals in 30 seconds and you know, say one fact and then one of them interrupts you or asks a question or and and, and then you start answering the question only to be interrupted again. So <laughs> I, I mean it it was fun for what it was, but it wasn't my favorite national TV experience. That would be for sure, hands down, Harry Connick Jr. show. Yes, yes, let's talk about that. Oh my goodness. I love Harry. Okay. First of all, everybody loves Harry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Harry Connick Jr. is, is as nice as he appears. Uh He is genuine. He has a wonderful, uh, wife and three daughters that are very down to earth and sweet and kind and respectful. Harry loves animals. And he, from the beginning was like, I will not do anything you don't want me to do. If you don't want me to touch the animal, what do you not want me to say? Like it was very, very considerate. He never tried to push me in a corner, which you know when you go sometimes on national TV or news, they they try to push you in a corner to get you to admit something or out of nowhere. So how do you feel about climate change? <laughs> it's not real. Uh, it's <laughs> Can not you imagine? Real, you guys. Stop falling for it. <laughs> Um, so, you know, he was really cool up front. He was just really wanted to be respectful of me and the animals. And I, I can't express how grateful any of us are for those types of interactions, whether it's live or, or at, uh, at a zoo, for example. And a lot of zoo people appreciate that respect as well. So it's, I loved that about him. I love his genuine interest and fascination with animals. Uh, I loved that he wanted to have a female host. No offense, Corbin, oh, um, but he wanted he wanted a girl. He wanted a woman on TV, you know. <laughs> and I think again that comes from the fact that his wife and his girls are such such strong, independent women. And he uh-huh. was like, "No, we should have a whim, a woman who works with animals on here, so we yep. can show the world, we can show young women that there are women doing this as mm-hmm. well." Um, and lastly, I really liked that nothing was really rushed. They gave us time to practice with our animals. If an animal wasn't having a great day or didn't feel like coming out that day, um, they were totally fine with it. We're like, oh. look, you know, this is a, a brand new uh, animal ambassador. They're still getting used to all the people and the lights and the temperature in here. As you know, it's always freezing cold. And mm. so thank you for not you know, this kinkajou is not going to come out today. Oh yeah, that's fine. You know, do we have something else or should we just add an extra story with a different animal? Really? Cool. Great. You know, so it was really easy to, to work with him and their entire staff. And you knew the the whole staff really loved their job compared to the other national, uh, (laughs) you could see everybody absolutely loved what they were doing. And, um, 
I also really think it was cool that Harry was always up for having some sort of an interaction with animals, even if he was nervous. He was very nervous around rodents, but he always played. He always played the game. It was really fun. And he always let me have a conservation message. So That's awesome. He was my favorite. I also feel too you feel that energy I like when you when you have that studio audience. You I feel like it yeah. just just uh I just you know what I mean? It just just makes the segment. You just feel like, oh, you know. Well, everybody in there is already so excited just to be on vacation in New York. You know, they're oh, like, yeah. oh, my gosh, I'm in the big city. I've been planning this trip for 15 years and I'm here. And mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, I'm on the Today Show and uh-huh. I'm watching this this in real life or I'm on, you know, I, I went on Anthony Anderson's talk show and you could see oh. everybody that, you know, loves blackish or sitting there like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, Anthony Anderson. You see, you get all that energy. And then mm-hmm. on top of it. They get the bonus of seeing live animal ambassadors and hearing these cool stories from us. Mm-hmm. And so the energy is just so loving and exciting and welcoming. And yeah, I, I, I wonder how many people get to experience that feeling because it's it's really unique. It is. It is. OK, so let's talk about the animal ambassadors, because even with with like my career, people are so confused because I, I, I live in the middle of nowhere in Idaho. And so people are confused, like, wait, how did you bring a penguin on? Like, so let's talk about. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the animal ambassadors, because a lot of people don't realize that when we do these shows, I mean, you're meeting these animals sometimes for the first time. And it's like, <laughs> you know, so let's talk about some of the animal ambassadors. Any fun experiences? Oh, oh yeah. OK, so. Um, when I worked for Omaha Zoo, I only worked with biofacts. We didn't have live animal ambassadors that left to go to zoo programs when I started when I was 23. I had bones, eggs, feathers, skulls, uh, poop, (laughs) scales, uh, sheds, molt, stuff like that. So I became, which again, I told you I love paleontology and archaeology. So I was in heaven with that. Um, it took a few years for me to learn how to actually work with animals. And I would never say I'm an animal trainer, especially now because I work with animal trainers all the time that are brilliant, that blow my mind. And um, I unfortunately don't always have the patience and I take it too personally when animals don't do. <laughs> but I'm like, why aren't, why aren't my tactics working? Um, so I work with a lot of highly skilled people. Um, as you do as well, that know these animals that have raised them to be animal ambassadors. And it does take a very specific personality and skill set, a certain amount of money, a certain amount of space, um, and uh, and also patience to be able to do, to have specifically animal ambassadors that do live animal shows or um, go on TV, for example. So I'm really fortunate that these animals are already highly trained when I get them to go on to a show. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but those of us that do go on TV with these animals are working with basically the same five people in the entire country. You know, <laughs> so we're working with Grant and Jamie. We're working with David Clement. We're, we're working with Gabe Kirshner. We're working with the same animal handlers that have been in this business for over 25 years doing, you know, they have worked with uh, Steve Irwin, Jack Hanna, Jeff Corwin, the Kratz, um, Jane Goodall, uh, me, you, uh, who else do we got? Casey Anderson. Casey Chris Anderson. Mason. Yes. Yeah. You know, we all work. Oh, Dave. Um, Dave Salmoni. Uh, Dave Salmoni, David Mizuzuki. Just, I can never say And if you can spell it. <laughs> Good luck spelling it. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I still haven't been able to uh, nail his name down. 
I don't but think, I love him. I don't think the hosts have either. We have David Mitsuhui on the anyway. Yeah, no, David's great. Yeah, so Dave, if you're listening, you should get a better stage name. Love I, your name. I guarantee Dave is not stages. listening to me. <laughs> will because I will share it and I'm going to tag it and say, I said, Dave. No, he just he just sent me his new pollinator book, so oh. I'm going to be like. Uh, oh, well, I'll give him a shout out then. He has a new awesome book because he works with the National Wildlife Federation. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. And his big mission right now is to share how you, how we can all help in our backyard, helping mm-hmm. with a lot of different types of wildlife issues. But mm-hmm. with climate change and uh, wildlife trafficking and pollinators and um, chemicals and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. he's basically looked at all that and said, okay, you know what? If you're mad about this, why don't you actually do something? And I'm going to provide you with this resource with his new book. Um, where it talks about how you can grow a garden in your backyard to help out uh, specifically pollinators, but obviously any animals that live within your community that you can give them that support system so they can survive there. Yeah, um, absolutely. No, Dave is great. I've never met the guy. No, Dave is great. No, but yeah, we all work with the same people. Rick Schwartz yep. from the San Diego yep. Zoo, Zookeeper Rick. Rick Schwartz do too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Rick, Rick and I are pretty good friends and he works out with San Diego Zoo, but me and him work with Gabe Kirshner here in California a lot. Uh-huh. So, these these are very trusted people. If me and you and Jeff Corwin and Steve Irwin and, and the Kratz, if all of us work with these same people, then it's obviously saying something. Um, and they become family and friends to us. But okay, I go and I'm doing my first appearances the first couple of years and I'm meeting all these, these animal ambassador companies for the first time. And yeah, there's times where I know what the animals are going to be, but I have had moments where we show up to the, the news station five minutes before it goes on air and I'm running in and I'm like, hi, Grant. Hi, Jamie. What do we got? And they're like, okay, you guys have one minute. I have some audio guy putting stuff on my head and, and behind my back and getting my mic all ready. And, and they're like, oh, okay. So we have a blue tongue skink. We have a Colombian red tail boat. We got an eagle owl. And we got, and I'm like, okay, which one should we bring up first? And they're like, what? And, the, and then you always hear the, the news person go, do you guys have like a koala? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a kid? And here I have, you know, an eagle, a snake, a tarantula, a lizard. <laughs> oh my god! Do you guys have a baby tiger here today? I... <laughs> and you know, and it's literally three, two, one. We're standing in front of the camera, and I don't know. Jamie will just look at me last minute and go, Ugh, and just like hand yeah. me an animal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you definitely have to know your animal facts. You need to know your, you have to have a relationship with these animals, have a story. But besides that, you, you have to be able to work in a very fast paced environment. You have to be very adaptable, um, very uh, understanding of how things move. Everything from the cords, you start to learn about all the cords underneath you when you go on a new station and, um, you know, about your audio and which how to hold an animal so you don't do this, you know, wiggle your mm-hmm. arm like look at this tortoise over here, over here, over here, over here. <laughs> Camera can't follow you to, you know, get a visual of that tortoise. So there's a lot that goes into it. And um I've definitely had moments where an animal Oh gosh, on Harry Connick Jr. I had a kinkajou that just ran around my head like oh. a tornado, all the way around my head, all the way down my waist, all the way back up to my head again, just spiraling around my body, and I had to keep calm the entire time. <laughs> oh, that's awesome though. That makes great TV. That oh, I would have loved that. That's better than yeah. That's great. 
Oh, yeah. And, and, I mean, and then what's that? I have to ask you then, what's your line? You know, there's a line between what makes great TV and what some people in our field will be like, well, that's being disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should have done that with that animal or clearly that animal stressed, you know. Well, so I would like to bring up the topic of, that's you know, of animal ambassador controversy and how you feel about that and work great, with that. Great. So my number one line, whenever you see any of my live stuff on the Today Show or Late Night, is I'm always saying like animals are taking over the studio. So we we never usually have animals like restrained or we have, you know, these, these animals literally are just, for instance, you know, penguins walking around on the floor. I mean, we have, you know, birds flying around. So we never make an animal do anything that they don't want to do. Of course. An, an, another thing I think that we need to talk about, some people think it's so easy to be like, oh, you know, I, you know, we just did a cheetah on the Today Show and it's like, oh, like, you know, oh, so you just picked a cheetah and, you know, this and that. And that's great. Brought on the Today Show. There's a huge process regarding permits and veterinarians and insurance. And there's just a lot of stuff that goes into it and planning and safety and security. And so it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes in to make sure the animals are, you know, secure, like, you know, happy, healthy. Everyone goes through, you know, a, you know, like a check, you know, a health background check. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And so, like I said, we never make any animal do anything they don't want to do. And there's been instances where we ha we've had amazing animals that just didn't want to come out of their crates. And it's like, well, that's just, I guess that's it. I guess I'm just going to show a starfish today. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's what you have to do. I feel like the majority of the controversy, though, it comes either when you work with primates or big cats. Exactly. And I've had that, too. And, and definitely I... I tend to try to steer away from having primates and big cats, but every once in a while there is a, a great opportunity where, look, this mother rejected this baby, and obviously we know it cannot be put out in the wild because uh, no matter what you hear any extremists or some activists say, like you cannot return these animals back in the wild. They would not survive. It'd be like you throwing your own baby or your puppy out and being like, you deserve to be in the wild. Good luck out there. You know, that's yeah especially babies cannot. And so, yeah, we've, we've had opportunities where Grant and Jamie have, um, young cats and young monkeys that have been rejected and we have brought them on the show. And every once in a while, I'll have people that will write me within my field and say, you know, this might be contributing to the pet trade. Um, because people see you with that monkey and even though yes you're an expert and the people that raise the monkey and and are experts and there's a reason why we're breeding them uh for education for raising funds for research for genetic diversity um i still think it would be wise for you not show primates and i i love my field and i respect um everybody within our field that is knowledgeable and experienced in, in the in specific areas so i definitely hear everybody out um but again, what a lot of people might not understand is that we're working with multiple entities and I don't always have the final say on everything. And if I want to get our combined me message out to the world, then I need to make compromises. And so sometimes, uh, depending on who's all involved in the situation, the monkey is going to come on. And when it does, I do my best to make sure so to say, this monkey is not a pet. And let me explain to you, like, you know, that there is a pretty bad pet industry where people do want to have these animals as pets. But let me explain, like we know this monkey, it's this age, this is where it's at developmentally, but eventually it is 
still going to become a wild monkey and they do poop everywhere and they are they can be very violent and they can bite and be very very destructive mm-hmm. and um and it would never be wise and smart and healthy to take an animal from the wild it's illegal to do that yeah. <laughs> also yeah. like morally it's morally not good to do that unless you have uh, permits and scientific proof that it's necessary to do so so i try to do that but of course this is a boring topic for people on the media, isn't it, Corbin? Yeah. So we're just going to edit that information no, out. No, it's not we? boring. Just leave the no, cute no, it's. I, I find it really interesting. A lot of behind the scenes stuff, you know. Yeah, you do. But I have found that a lot of stations, will, or a lot of networks, will be like, "That's a great conservation <laughs> message," but we're just going to oh. edit that out and leave you with a cute baby monkey. And then people in my field are like, "You just made it look like a pet." I was like, "No, I tried really hard." <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, this is the best thing about having this podcast, though. It's this conversation. You actually have people. If people are listening, we're 56 minutes in. We have dedicated listeners like, you know, I think they find it interesting. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah the, yeah, the editing and the cuts and stuff like that. But yeah, th- there are animals in particular. I think, I mean, has there been one animal that you worked with that you're about to bring on that you were like, oh, my goodness, like you were nervous around or you were like, oh, I'm going to get backlash. Uh, to any primate, anytime any I bring a primate on, which the only primates I've ever brought on are, I think, a uh, baby baboon and oh, yeah. um, probably a capuchin or capuchin. Um, yeah. But I usually don't work with primates. Um, but I also say I had uh, a baby tiger one time. And then another one that I tend to be nervous with is, um, shoot, it just fell right out of my head. Lion? No, I haven't worked with a lion cub yet. I've worked with servals and caracals and and cheetahs and stuff like that. Um, Haven't had a lion yet, but there was one particular. Oh, shoot. Oh, I remember. Arctic fox. And it was a very, it was a young Arctic fox that was being trained as an animal ambassador. It was rejected uh, from its mother from a zoo and then taken over by one of our partner sanctuaries that knew the animal really well. So they're trying it out for the first time and it and it was stressed and panting a lot and we still made the choice um to bring it on to the show because it was kind of the headline animal and because it wasn't training so sometimes just like all of us the first time you go swimming in the ocean you're a little bit nervous but it doesn't mean you don't go swimming in the ocean if there's a potential there that you could be great at swimming in the ocean and stuff could come from that you you push through that fear and you get through it um, so I think it was one of those things where, okay, this was this, this animal's first time as a, a baby going on the show and there was a lot of people. And, um, so we were like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And from this point on, you know, that, that Fox has done fabulously. It was just the first time. And yeah, so it was a little more anxious. It was panting. It was freezing in the studio. So it wasn't hot. It was, it was mm-hmm. kind of nervous. Mm-hmm. And I did get some backlash from that from people who were like, clearly that animal's stressed. And, but I'm like, yeah, well, it's because it's being trained to be an animal ambassador and this was the very first time now from that point forward the handlers were definitely okay we're going to see how he does a second time and if he's still stressed then obviously that animal will be you go to its habitat and live a wonderful life in its habitat not Mm -hmm. as an animal ambassador so it's there's always these compromises right you have to work with it is it is funny because people see animals you know i'm sure it was like a winter segment or something like that right the arctic it was a (laughs) And again, it's a winter segment. And when these producers from these big time networks find out, oh, we're doing a winter segment and there's going to be a flipping Arctic fox. 
to see the disappointment and frustration when we say something like, oh, the animal's a little bit stressed, like maybe we'll just give it a break for right now. And to see them be like, look, this is the animal we've been actually sharing to our audience. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. We'll give it a shot and see how it goes. So definitely there's there are compromises that had to be made. And again, I can't stress enough how healthy and great that animal is today. It was just a little bit stressed, just like if you brought your dog into a really busy, loud area. Yeah, that's funny because I think most people watch these segments and you look at animals, you know, like the foxes or, you know, like the, the the cats and think, oh, that must be the best, you know, the most fun to bring on. It's like, ah, those are actually sometimes the most nerve wracking. All mammals all mammals <laughs> yeah i would say yeah i agree i, I think... mean over over reptiles reptiles oh, are i love so reptiles easy. well that's how i got my start and it's like oh here's you know here's an alligator you know <laughs> like, yep. just and that's all they do they just sit every <laughs> once in a while every once in a while they wiggle their butt a little bit to readjust yeah but of course those aren't the animals that are you know spiraling around your body and yeah. uh you know, that get those types of reactions that the network wants. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you and I worked with the same tigers. Did did, did, yeah. did, did he have three of them? Yeah. Yep, yep. yep. I brought those on late night. Yep, three of them. And yeah, that was, yep. they were like three months old at the time. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, yeah, definitely fun. <laughs> so really quick, I know we're almost actually over an hour. Do you still, I find this interesting, you lived in a tiny house. Can we talk about that really quick? Yeah. Okay. So I, after seeing working all around the world and filming with Wild Kingdom and with other entities, I have been exposed to a lot of the issues that are going on in our planet. I've seen it with my own eyes compared to some of my friends that might live in the Midwest who have maybe seen plastic pollution in the ocean in a post, but it's us humans were such a reactive species. You know, we don't really feel something intensely to the point of changing a behavior really until we see it in person. That's not exclusive 100% all the time, but it is one of the most impactful things. And for me to swim out in the ocean to tag a whale shark and have to push plastic out of the way that comes from wow. every corner of the earth is extremely impactful and eye-opening. And so after seeing a lot of those things, my husband and I are like, well, what can we do? Like, we're, we're dedicated our careers to this. We have three businesses educating constantly on um, conservation issues through different mediums. As you saw, my husband's an artist. So through painting, through film, through speaking, through blogs, um, what else can we do in our daily life? And I, I think we just got to a point where we were like, you know what? The biggest issue on this planet is the fact that we have almost 8 billion homo sapiens on a planet that can does not have the resources to take care of 8 billion people. And uh, maybe it, it would if we all lived a balanced, sustainable lifestyle. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And so for us, we basically just said we're going to become minimalist and we're going to challenge ourselves and see, like, really how hard could it be? Like, is it hard? And so three years ago, we moved into a 180 square foot tiny house on wheels and we cut, we, whatever we did have, we sold or donated. And the challenge from there is then stopping habits that you have been trained to have since you were two years old to consume, to consume when you're bored, when you're sad, when you're happy, um, when you feel less than, um, and then how to handle the stuff you get when your parents, you know, when people give you gifts or when your parents pass away and they give that to you. 
Um, how do you handle that stuff? You know, emotional connection to things is so powerful. You sold and everything? We sold almost everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> but we did, to be fair, both of us spent all of our 20s traveling. So we really didn't have a lot anyway. Uh-huh. But we we moved into 180 square feet, and um, we made sure the whole design of the house was sustainable. Everything that was used in it is eco-friendly, sustainable, energy efficient. Uh, we don't even own an AC um, or a heater or a washer and dryer or a dishwasher. No, are, are you are you um, are you still in there, Stephanie? Yeah, absolutely. It's wow. been three years now. Wow. And we love it. And you know, it, what we learned is it's all about living a sustainable lifestyle. You know, nothing is black or white. Everything is in the gray, which is really hard for humans to be in the gray. And for us, it's what we have to pay attention, not only to our food, which is what a go-to for everybody is like, Oh, I'm a vegan. So I did my part. I'm done. And it's, it's not about food. It's not just about food. It's about our fashion. It's about our building materials. It's about our toiletries, our cleaning products, what goes on our lawn, what goes in our car. And so we've really had to challenge ourselves on how to uh, live by our words, to walk our talk. And some, and we're very honest too. If you're following me on social media, you will see that there's days where I'm like, ah, a composting toilet saves 500 gallons of water a week. But oh my God, I hate it. I hate having a composting toilet. Um, you know, <laughs> oh my God, how do you guys, you know, can just really quick, what is one thing that you miss? Like an actual toilet? Like, is that something that you were, when you moved into this house, you're like, wow, I miss a toilet, like little things like that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I miss being able to sit on a toilet, do my business, flush it, and it disappears, and I don't ever have to deal with it in any way, shape, or form. And that's unfortunately not how it works with a composting toilet. Um, how does you know, it you work? Really Maybe have, you just take it out? And... You have you have a pee bucket and a poo bucket, okay. and your pee bucket fills up, and of you've course. never had to be aware of it filling up, so it can overflow if you're not, you know, haven't changed that habit. Um, your poo bucket has uh -huh. to have very specific composting materials in it. And it's very, very picky. It's a super feisty little thing, system, ecosystem. Um, we use coconut husk. You can use peat moss, but peat moss isn't sustainable. So we use coconut husk and we get this type of, um, diatomaceous earth, okay. this mixture, which prevents you from getting flies. And so it's very picky. You have to have the right airflow, the right humidity. You have to churn it. It's compost. Um, and so you have to deal sometimes with flies or smell um, or overflowing of things. And, you know, as you can see, I'm an honest gal. Okay. Yeah, you I, are. Okay. I <laughs> uh, because this is, the, this is the thing. We all want to say what other people should be doing. Yeah. And how things should work. And we get online behind our keyboards and we yell at, at how the world is working and how angry we are that we see pain and suffering. But a lot of us aren't willing to make the inconveniences of having a composting toilet or of cutting back single-use plastics or being more aware of where our fashion comes from or cutting out as much meat as possible. And, you know, we're, we're willing to, to complain about it, but we're not willing to change the actions and point the fingers at ourselves because of things like smelly composting toilets. Man. And so, yeah, I, my I, husband and I have dealt with some stuff. <laughs> oh my God. And I thought, cause I usually, I can't believe I'm saying this on air. I just, I, I usually just go pee outside because, and I feel like yeah. I'm, and I feel like I'm doing my part, but oh my gosh, a compost toilet. I give you the, the award. <laughs> 
you know, and, and I, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, you know, Tim pees outside a lot of the time too. I, I mean, like, it's just ridiculous. I, I think we need to change behaviors. We need to change systems and we need to politely encourage companies to change their ways to become more sustainable. Banning doesn't always necessarily work. They'll just fill the hole with something else unsustainable. Um, and I think we just got to do what we can, where we can, and what you're willing to do. And, you know, we're willing to have a composting toilet. However, we have a lot of camera gear. So, you know, I think there's a give and a take, and you need to be patient with yourself and work through it. Yeah, and I have to say, and this might be too personal, and so you don't have to answer it, um, but I hope you do. But, I mean, so, because you got, you and Tim are minimalist, is that how you're able to financially afford to travel the world and do all these amazing things? It really helps a lot. Okay. Um, we have in the last three years with our combined income and having a minimalist lifestyle have been able to pay off all of our debt. Um, we are uh, we do save a lot of money because we don't I think the design of the fridge needs to it needs to be redesigned. We buy way too much food and we fill it up and then there's a lot of food waste. So it's really controlled the amount of food we buy. It's we don't buy a bunch of dishes. We don't buy a bunch of decorations all the time. Um, we can only fit so many clothes or and shoes. And okay. so we're extremely limited on what we can buy. Therefore, we're not out there wasting money on things that we think that we're told we need to have or that we think we need to have. Um, so yes, it absolutely has saved money for sure and has contributed to us being able to take risks with our career that has allowed us to do to do and see some of the things that we have done and seen. That's awesome. That's okay. One other thing besides the toilet that you miss. I mean, and do you ever have a bad day where you're like, listen, Tim, we're going to go to Red Robin and get a cheeseburger and we're going to both use an actual bathroom. <laughs> you know what I well, mean? I mean, obviously uh, we have, I'm in my own office and I have a normal toilet here. Okay, good. Low, it is a low flow toilet. Thankfully. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely days I, I, that we don't do everything right. We are not perfect. We never claim to be because the more we know, the more we find out about everything in this field, the more we realize we don't know. And so we're not going to sit there and tell people what they should and shouldn't do. All I can do is encourage people to do the best they can and take those risks and challenge themselves where they're willing to. But there's absolutely days where like, you know, we're not vegans. We, we uh -huh. focus on supporting sustainable agriculture and local especially. And so we eat chicken and turkey pretty regularly, but there is times where we're like, oh, I just want a fatty steak. And <laughs> it's, only, it's a couple times a year and we'll make sure it's local and organic and free range and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely times where we allow ourselves to go all out. And it's, I think it's, I think it's important psychologically to do that. Otherwise you give up, you get overwhelmed, you come apathetic and you quit. Mm -hmm. Um, so you definitely have to be kind and loving and patient with yourself, which is really hard to do. Um, especially if you're overloaded and burnt out and have compassion fatigue. Um, but you do need to be loving and patient with yourself and do the best you can. And then from there, if you have the luxury to point fingers at other people, I would hope instead of pointing fingers that you try to inspire people, encourage them, um, and doing it from a loving way instead of a judging and shameful way because you ain't perfect either. Yeah, yeah, yeah that totally yeah. makes sense. That's awesome, yeah. Stephanie. Do you have any last minute advice for any you know young listeners or people you know wanting to travel the world and just pursue their dreams? I think the most important thing is that um, you try to find what makes you vibrate. And the best way I can describe that without sounding hippie 
is like when you <laughs> when you think about when you were a kid or when you saw something on TV or saw it in real life or somebody told you a story and you internally start to just shake. You're just like <laughs> that feeling, you know, when you meet somebody that you like start to fall in lust or love with and you're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like point that out and go, okay, that's something that means something to me. And then start to explore that and try to find it somewhere. And I think what separates a lot of individuals, especially in our field, are the ones that are willing to go the extra mile, to work two jobs, to stop buying things they don't need, to take risks and invest, whether it's using your loan money from school or a credit card, to take a risk to to discover that a little bit more and to get more experience and to be open-minded that when you do do that, you might find out that what you thought, like maybe you're like, oh, I get excited when I think about crocodiles, but then maybe you got a chance to work them at a zoo and it was an unpaid internship. You take it. If you get an opportunity to go to Mexico to swim with them, you put on the credit card if you have to after working two jobs, you know, put your effort in, get there and you might get super excited. But what might get you is something like being a scientist working with them or working with the locals about overfishing so that we don't overfish so it protects the crocodile. Um, you'll start to discover that there's so many other opportunities out there that you would have never known existed if you didn't work your butt off and take, you know, challenge yourself and take risks to get there. To me, that is what stands out or not is when I see somebody go, Oh, but I can't do that because of this. And then they just quit. You might love it. It doesn't mean you don't have that passion. Um, maybe don't have the support system. I don't know, but it does definitely to me, show me who's willing to go that extra, extra, extra mile and a very competitive field to get where people want to be. Yeah, I agree. You are awesome, Stephanie. It was so cool talking to you. And it's really cool because, I mean, there's not a lot of people that I personally can talk to that can relate to some of the experiences. And I'm sure you're in the same field, you know, in the same feeling too, kind of like. Yeah. And I, and I think what's hard, Corbin, is that we, when we do go through, when we learn something new about what's going on on the planet, or for me, when I am exposed to what's going on economically and politically and why, you know, these animals are dying or why this is happening to land and, and yet you still have to be a spokesperson and be in front of the camera and present yourself a certain way. I mean, I get really frustrated sometimes because I, I want to cry and I want to complain about my job sometimes, but I can't because a lot of people are like, you know what, shut up. You got your dream job. You love what you do. You're paid to do what you do. You can't complain. But there is definitely times where I'm like, I don't know how to handle this emotionally um, or I struggle with keeping hope sometimes because of some of the things that I have been exposed to. Um, and, and sometimes I don't always have somebody to connect with that really understands me in my life (laughs) yeah well reach out anytime and if you want something really uplifting listen to the uh vaquita podcast episode because there's only 15 of them left and uh, no i'm kidding no really no 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 (laughs) no actually (laughs) that's not a jokey matter there's that and the reason why i made that joke is that if you listen to the podcast you'll find out from the scientists they can save them actually which is amazing genetically they found out genetic variation so that's why i said that hey yeah i actually haven't heard that so that's really uplifting and i think that's also what's positive too right is we need to make sure that we are constantly surrounded with positive stories and realize how important that is yeah absolutely absolutely 
Anyway, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can my listeners find you? You're all over social media. Where can they find you? And I'll make sure to include your links in the stuff, but go ahead. And- of course. Yeah. So um, it's just at Stephanie Arnie, Stephanie with a PH. And then my last name's A-R-N-E, Arnie, not Arna or Arna. <laughs> Um, you can find me mostly active on Facebook and Instagram. You can go to stephaniearney.com and from there you'll be able to find uh, my nonprofit creativeanimal.org or uh, wildkingdom.com and also you can find my new documentary Cities of the Sea found on curiositystream.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's super fun. Let's do this more often. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.